Hello, Max Tinkett. And I'm Patrick Lubbock. And this is episode 16 of Rewatch Podcast. This week we're watching episode 16 of Lost in Translation. Uh, our guest this week is Patrick Somerville. He is a writer for The Leftovers. And Patrick is going to ask him what it's like to work with Damon Lindelof. Patrick, what will it sound like when you ask him that question? Hey, Patrick. Cool name, bro. That's it. That's the end of the interview. Sorry, that's going to be pretty short. That's all I got. That's all I got. Sorry, I spent I spent it all on gaming. I can't do it on these writers. Uh, no, we're going to we're going to talk about like mythology and world building, and uh, you know, specifically in a show that uh, tries to not answer anything, uh, as opposed to a show like Lost that you know tried its best to, or I guess depends on your perspective, but tried to answer things. So yeah. Cool. Well, we've got some uh, we've got some good noise this morning. We've but got, for a good reason. Yeah, it's for a very good reason. So we have. So the setup in the new office is kind of cool. So it's like it's these two old uh, warehouse-type uh, buildings that uh, we got through cards. And uh, one of them is like our office space. So, you know, if you've seen any pictures of the new office, uh, we'll, we'll post some, maybe we'll post some of these in the show notes. But if you've seen any pictures, you know, that's the more office side. And then this building that we're in, this is like the north building. And this is more of like a venue, like public shared resource um, uh, I don't know. How would you describe it? Like, it's more like technical stuff. So we have like our art yeah. There's studio. like there's like you know the you, you guys have you know some limited storage on hand for like inventory. There is kind of a is the the art studio is over on this side. So there's like MakerBots and things like that. There's mm-hmm. the uh, the streaming studio that that I use and you use, and that connects to the theater. So that if we wanted to broadcast live events, so it's kind of stuff that is is either multi purpose or public facing. Uh, it kind of happens on this side of the. the yeah, I would, that's a that's a good way to put it. Um, so it's also extremely early, and I've not had any coffee, so mm-hmm. we'll get to that in a minute. But uh, anyway, you're going to get livelier as this goes along. What you're going to see that you're going to see coffee and the body react in real time. Okay, dear listener, uh, I'll believe it when I see it. Anyway, we uh, so we are currently we have this little recording studio, kind of our podcasting room and and you, you know game streaming room, and then we're across the hall from this sort of theater space, and we want to build. And the idea is like they're right next to each other, so that we can uh, do an event in the theater and stream it. You know, it's really easy. We just bring the cameras across the hall, and we set up, and we're good to go. We we stream out of the same um, you know equipment that we have in here. We record with the same equipment that we have in here. Uh, and this morning, it's actually, this is great. We have uh, the construction guys are back and they're doing some work so we can get our stage built out and like some of the, the, the utilities that we need in there, which has been awesome because we've been waiting for that for a few weeks. But uh, right while we're doing the podcast, we got a, we got a lot of... Hey, we got things to do. You're going to PAX East. I'm not going to PAX East. GDC is going on. Neither of us are going to GDC. A banging. Yeah, so if you hear some banging, uh, it's, either, it's either the, the jungle beat or it's uh, some people <clears throat> putting in a stage... 30 feet away from us yeah that's about right take your pick it's a test of the uh, soundproof studio we'll exactly yeah we're is. gonna see we're gonna see how it goes they've um, got a shop vac in there a shop vac is uh the loudest sound that the human species is uh, has ever invented it's a crowning achievement <coughs> except for that one that, that 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 one was pretty loud too that was pretty loud uh it's very early we're doing we're recording this episode in the morning before your job mm-hmm. at um remind me of the website Kotaku. thank you uh it's in the show notes. No, it's not. <laughs> we should put a link to this. Do you have an author page? On the, uh, on the, yeah, there's like a tag. I can send, I can send. Do you have a Kinja page? I do have a, a Kinja. I think it's just Patrick Clubbick. Have Kinja. you had to learn all the functionality of the Kinja system? It's just a crappy WordPress system. Am I allowed to say that? No one's going to listen to this. I'm fine. Okay. We'll have a link. Also, nobody likes Kinja that works there anyway. So. 
<laughs> like, who likes the content management system they work with? That never is a thing. I, I will say, as a actually, I loved mine at Giant Bomb because Dave Snyder is an amazing. He but he like the difference of building a small set of tools for a small group and their very specific needs versus building tools for large groups right. like is a wildly different. Yeah, as a, as a, I will say, as a reader, I have always found Kinja extremely confusing, and I never understand how to find anything. And you feel like the authors. Yeah, and I wind up always clicking on some listicle, and I'm, I'm mad, and it works. I guess that's the idea of the I design. Uh, so we'll put a link to Patrick's uh, author page on his website. Um, remember what it's called? Kotaku. Kotaku.com. Um, and then, um, yeah, I don't got anything else going on. We're uh, It's kind of a quiet week, and uh, it's going to so, be a quiet weekend. It's so me. early. I've not been up this early in a good long while. Except for when we did this, like oh, like a week. No, nah, we were like an hour later, um, like half an hour later. Half an You'd hour haven't later. had any coffee. That's the difference. That All right, we're gonna get. To, we're gonna it. we're gonna perk you up. Okay. Thanks to our excited readers who have written in. We got. We, uh, now now that we're minute. doing. What? I got something. What? I got something. Okay. Can we talk go. about packs. You can. Yeah. What's what's well? Packs is gonna be over by the time this goes up. So. If you're promoting something, that's not going to. No, work. no, I'm not promoting. I'm just. Okay. What should I be looking for at PAX? And we'll, sleeping. And we'll up. We'll sleeping. Talk about it. That's why I'm not no, going. That's not why you go to PAX to sleep. That's the opposite. I'm going to have the opposite problem. I, with I'm that. not going to PAX, so I can't sleep. I gotcha. Do you know of anything happening at PAX that's interesting? Um, not that not I'm aware of. Uh, it's just PAX East is never really good for seeing any interesting. There games. might be some smaller, like if you if you know you are know, speaking like grandiose video game announcements. Like PAX East is kind of really tough because uh, it's just a couple months before E3, which is right. a terrifying prospect. But uh, so you know there there might be teases, but you know it, it, like any like any other PAX. The best thing to do is to go to the the mega booth and the smaller stuff that's in the the different floors and the stuff that you aren't going to necessarily buy when because you, you've already pre ordered it. Like that's always my recommendation is just to go see the weird stuff where because uh, the smaller booths, the weirder stuff, you're actually going to be able to talk to the people that make it, <clears throat> uh, which is just not going to be the case when you go see. Do you, do you ever do the tabletop stuff at PAX? I just don't have time. Like you, you know, time. I my actual coverage of like video games because then I have to be on panels and have something to talk about and it's just a it's just a time investment like to sit down and learn a board game is a lot different than to sit down and play some platformer that's got a unique gimmick and is there do you know is there a giant bomb panel i'm sure okay. uh yeah i know i was talking to Vinny. he's like are we gonna, we're gonna get a drink i was like nope because i'm not going <laughs> uh yeah they've got something going on so uh i wish i could be there and uh and drop by but unfortunately not so i'll be a pax prime oh, and i'll be a pax next year i just I'll, didn't want to go this year i'll say hello uh, to everyone for you thank you could you wear a mask and just go on stage for me? <laughs> yeah, I could do a Patrick. Uh, I could do a, a Patrick impression. Everyone will yell scoops at me, and then some people who don't know what's going on will think they're booing. Yep, uh, you've nailed is, it so far. The thing that's happened. Uh, let's see. Uh, I'll try and uh, work. I'll some. try try and uh, take someone's really bad question, rephrase it to them, so that they can save face a little bit and not seem like a jerk. Yep. Uh, I will try and work some informative uh, information, some actual content <laughs> into the panel as everyone is like yawning and like like. Well, actually, interesting story behind the development of that game. <laughs> everyone's like, like tell Jeff to tell you to shut the fuck up. Yeah, like what the. F- Let's have the fart noises. Let's have some slide whistles. Come on, man. It's PAX panel. Yeah, that's true. Um, <clears throat> all right. That was so. The first time I ever saw any sort of giant bomb uh, content, it was a PAX panel that Ryan uh, pulled me into, mm. and that was my impression of the panel. I was like, was that the this? breast milk one? Oh no, this was before that. Way before that. Um, no, that was. Oh my god. Is that the one we were all drunk on stage? 
Uh, sounds like all of them. Uh, no, there's ooh, one very master. one very specifically. Oh, really? <laughs> it might have been it actually. But I uh, prime. It was my first one. Speaking of which, uh, Brewmaster Andy mm-hmm. doing some custom Cards Against Humanity beer. Fantastic. Uh, it's like a coffee stout. I roasted. That sounds the coffee. gross. I roasted the coffee for it. I don't want to drink that, but I bet it's. I bet it's well made. Yeah, you don't like coffee beers? No. Hmm. I like it. But I bet Brewmaster Andy. He always does a really good job. And, he does uh, a great job. Love gets, the labels. He gets you nice and drunk. Yes. Did uh, uh, if I wash me <clears> the labels this time again? What? Did Fobosh make the labels? I think so, Steve yeah. Kim? Yeah, I think he so. He does a good job. Yeah. Uh, oh, I was going to say, my first, so my first Giant Bomb uh, content that I ever saw was this panel. It was live, like at PAX. Ryan pulled me onto it. It might have been your first panel, and I remember my impression was, boy, this uh, Patrick fellow knows a lot about video games, and these other idiots do not let him say, do not let him get a word in on this panel edgewise. I'm trying to think... Because you knew you, was, you like knew all the Mega Booth games and you knew all the good stories of what was going on and everyone else was. It was just the like, same year that the the Molly Jam happened, which yep. was my first one. And you were talk you were talking about Molly Jam on the panel. Then maybe it was that. Yeah, we were yep. all pretty drunk. Yep. Because did we came out with wrestler entrances before we came out from behind a curtain? That sounds right. And like we're doing like a Hulk. Okay, yeah. Yeah, Ryan had invited me to be on wearing the panel. Sun- everyone was wearing sunglasses when we started. I think that sounds like it. I, rem- I, I remember the wrestler entrances because Ryan had invited me to come talk about cards on the panel. Mm-hmm. And then everyone had the crazy entrance. And I was like, what the hell did yep. I just get into? And this is crazy. So what's huge, this job crazy I just accepted? Audience. Yeah, mm-hmm. weird. All right. Uh, Got some good follow-up <clears throat> this week. Follow-up. Listener follow-up. Look at this. When we do a podcast regularly, it's almost like people start listening and then getting involved and then sending I us know. emails. The problem <laughs> is we just put out... So we're recording this on a Tuesday. We put out the episodes on a Monday, so mm-hmm. we're, not, we're recording early. Usually there's a little bit Max. more of a buffer, um, yeah. but, but Max is going to be gone, so we want to make sure we stay on schedule. So we've but, not uh, given... You know, last week we had a, a lot of questions about the difference between prawns and shrimp, and we have not... Had, in my opinion, we have not had a satisfactory amount of follow up yet about. We'll get we'll get to it, and then if people want to weigh in further, yeah. and maybe call our reader a liar, that's what we're okay. Yeah, with I think we have not had enough, you know, feedback vis a vis the shrimp versus prawn dichotomy. Well, we'll get there. Okay, you yet. you so because if, if you want to read the third one, you've got to read the first one. So why don't you start? <clears throat> okay, this is from Gareth. It's always good to do that before you start reading. I'm sorry, it's so early. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to keep needling you about I, it. I, I, the amount of coffee I've had is none. Okay, this is from Gareth. And Gareth says, hey guys, love the show. I'm glad it's back. Thanks, Gareth. Oh, there's more here. <laughs> yeah, uh, there is. Thought I'd just let you know how to pronounce the name of the actress who plays Claire. As you guys keep struggling with it, it's just Emily. Is that true? I don't know. <laughs> I just thought it was a very funny email because it doesn't actually help us. Oh boy. Okay, Emily. But that's not really the hard part, is it? Is it though? Is it the Raven? Is that the one that we're actually part the part that we're struggling with? Do you is uh, so? Is he saying <clears throat> that it's Emily de Raven or Emily de Raven? Yeah, it's Emily does something. I don't know. I thought I, I liked I liked reading this email when I first read it. I read it straight, and he was just saying like just. Just stop trying to say the rest. Of oh, it. Just, just call say, her. Emily. Oh, I see. Like, yeah, like implying as though he knows her. Oh, He's like, yeah. oh, we just call her Emily. Yeah, I love that when you see. That's like a big, uh, <clears throat> like a celebrity a move that you'll see on a uh, on a talk show. They'll be like, yeah, oh yeah, I was, uh, uh, you know, it's like someone will be like, uh, what's it like to work with uh, Christopher Walken? And and the guy celebrity will go, oh, Chris. He's a pleasure. See, there like, you go. Yeah, you work in. It's just like, just like, it's like ah, we get it. You know him. I mean, we worked with him for. You, we know you know him. Like, it's kind of. Sh- <laughs> it's like I get. I get it. 
people do that with you know don't don't you hear that a lot when celebrities are talking about other celebrities and they always have to shorten their name? I feel like that's kind of brag. This is a form of name dropping for sure. Humble, yeah, humble right. brag. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Anyway, so we. Uh, I feel like that's our version of that. If we just call her Emily, like, oh Emily, great job in this scene. I'm gonna think about it though. Yeah. <laughs> We're just uh, probably doing it from now on. Uh, yeah, wrong, no, but. for sure. Oh, okay, okay. As long as we're just acknowledging like the undertone. Yeah, we're no, no. We're definitely doing it from now on. I just, you know, it's it's super silly. Okay. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna do these next two because they're kind of they come in a combo pack. Okay. Uh, and they address the the question you were alluding to earlier. <clears throat> Randy writes in and says, "What's the best kind of shrimp trick question? It's all shrimp." <laughs> Let's also point out he put no no uh, punctuation in that email at all. And thanks, Randy. It, and it made it very difficult for me to figure it out in real time because I didn't read it ahead of time. But I'm Sh- glad that I pulled it off. I'm a professional. Shrimp enthusiast, Randy. Yeah, Randy the shrimp. Randy uh, the at shrimp Randy man. the shrimp. Is that a person? I want to see if at Randy the shrimp is a person. Twitter.com. This show gets weird when Randy we do it early. The shrimp. I almost wrote Randy this ship. It really does. It really has no punctuation. It just says, what's the best kind of Just would like like, like everyone to know shrimp. that Randy the Shrimp is now available. If you'd like to register that and do something dumb with it, uh, it's open. Uh, James says, prawn is the Australian term for shrimp. It's like how we say jam and you guys say jelly, but it's the same thing. Yeah, and you're not think, satisfied with that, are you? No, I don't think that's true because I will, on American menus... I do see prawns appear. Don't you think that's just American menus just trying to be fucking fancy? It could be. I it could be. I think they're just trying to but think, see, that's like, oh, I, prawns. Like, I, they just take shrimp, they I charge see. a couple extra dollars, and they make you think you're buying something fancy. Maybe it's like, um, <clears throat> you know, beef versus uh, cow. You know, it's like prawn is the animal and shrimp is the food product. So it, once it's like deep fried or turned into a paste, it's a shrimp. Sure. Or, you know, what, what do we do that? We do, like, you know, lamb and veal. Sure. That's, but I also think it could be just Americans co-opting a term that sounds different. It's, it is kind of disgusting that we eat a whole shrimp, isn't it? They're really – they're such a disgusting animal. They're like these weird ocean insects. And then when you have to – when you if you prepare them yourselves and you have to cut out that, that, that black line. Which oh, would, the would mustard. It, yeah. What is yeah. that actually, though? I, I remember Katie explained to me. Oh, it's like the, the nervous system. Yeah, Katie explained it to me. To me it's no good if out. you eat it. Mm. It's all the – I think that's where the shrimp poo is. Yeah, that's what it is. That's yeah. right. That's the It's the digestive part. tract and the whole system. Ah, uh, speaking, speaking of Katie. Wow. It is uh, segue. very early. Okay. All right. It, we've it, got some listener fan mail here. Hey, Patrick and Max. Hey, Hey, reader. Hey, listener. Hey, listener. I loved Outlaw, and I agree that it's one of my favorite season one episodes. Sawyer's one of my favorite characters, and his flashbacks are so entertaining. Also, his nicknames for people are legendary. Truth. That is true. Just a quick follow-up to our honeymoon <sighs> story that Patrick told. Dun, dun, dun. It's Twist. Katie. Katie wrote this. Twist. I thought you'd appreciate this photo. Uh, and it's a... Let me describe the photo. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a photo... Oh, I see. So it's a photo of the shrimp... There's also a photo of you guys at the shrimp truck. Yep. Uh, and it's she says, uh, we had the spicy butter garlic shrimp, and it was delicious. And she's got a link to the Yelp. So the, the yeah. picture that you'll see, we'll put it in the, in the show notes. Uh, it's um, Yeah, we'll put we'll both It's in the same in spot where the the shrimp, was it shrimp love or shrimp whatever, whatever that shrimp truck was called. I can't remember. But anyway, it's where the one is located, like in the shot, uh, but it's a different shrimp truck because that one is out in the junk heap out back which i guess we didn't take a picture of maybe because we couldn't see it i can't remember 
Uh, I got some pretty short white shorts on in this photo. Um, you got the uh, old old school big Patrick hair. So, but yeah, I, so it's a little bit uh, big, a little bit long. Big old, big I meant old. To, I meant to get hair. my hair short, cut a little shorter for my wedding, but I got nervous about it, so <laughs> I just left it. Uh, and Katie goes on to say, "That is all." Wait, one more thing. Thanks for coming back on Mondays. They're not my favorite day, but they're always better with the rewatch. Ah, uh, nice. supportive, loving Boy, relationship. I like, uh, I like that Katie. She's real nice. Gotta, Someone you, should marry her. Yeah, you gotta lock that down. I'll work on it. Okay. Take a, the minute I buy a second ring, I don't want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> How do I lock it down without a second ring? Uh, you just super lock it down. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, unfortunately, this would be the time where we'd have a Drew follow-up, but Drew is still out there incognito. Drew, where are you? Are you alive? Send an SOS. Drew, why have you forsaken us? We brought this podcast just back for you, and you're not around. Uh, All right. But I guess in lieu of that, I guess we could, I guess we could have a great interview. Yeah, well, let's, uh, let's turn our attention to Lost. Uh, we've got uh, a chat with Patrick Somerville. He's a writer for The Leftovers, and uh, Patrick is going to ask him about what it is like working with Damon Lindelof. Hey. Hey, man. Can you hear me okay? I can totally hear you. Oh, I can do... Hold on. I can do, I can do that video magic, too. Let's see. Uh, there we go. Hey. How's it going? <laughs> Good. Uh, just moved into this new place and then realized two weeks into it that they're building an apartment like right next to us. So mm-hmm. the, the beginning of a year of construction noises begins. Uh, well, you're in Chicago, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw uh, on your Twitter page that you're from the Chicago area, right? Well, I grew up in Wisconsin, but I lived there. For oh, you lived in Wisconsin, huh? One of those people. One, I am one of those people. <laughs> But we moved. We moved to LA just one year ago, and we had been in uh, Chicago for eight years. So, what? Um, I say that with disdain, even though I my parents had a lake house in Wisconsin, so I spent a lot of time in Wisconsin. It was technically born in Wisconsin, but I identify as Chicago. Oh. You're, you're a Wisconsinite. Yeah, okay. uh, spent a lot of time in like Lake Geneva, like southern Wisconsin, like just over the just over the border. Yeah, yeah. I, I grew up in Green Bay, but. Oh, okay. Does that mean I went to college you... in Madison too? So I was down there all the time. Okay, so if you grew up in Green Bay, then like the but you spent a lot of your time in Chicago. Just moved from Chicago. Like the real question is like, did you root for the Packers or the Bears? What are you talking about? Of course, I the don't. Packers. Of course, the Packers. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's the better team to root for. So I guess I can't really, I can't really fault you there. What What would that say about me if I had <laughs> switched when I got to Chicago? That uh, you like to suffer, uh, you enjoy rooting for teams that hold on to things that happened more than two decades ago. Uh, a lot of pain and suffering is what it would mean that you'd, you'd be. In it was cool that, like, if you grew up in Green Bay, you're you're all in forever if if you like football at all. Well, I mean, so- that's what Chicago's like too, right? Like, I mean, yeah. Or if you're a Cubs fan, like, it's hey, they're never gonna win, probably, but that's part of the fun, I guess. Right. <laughs> but I did really like. Um, I mean, it's super intense rivalry, but then I really loved moving to Chicago, and I listened to uh, sports radio all the time when I was okay. driving to work and stuff. Just, I don't know why, but I felt like I knew the Bears team and, like, all the stories inside the team and the training camp and all the players, like, as well, if not better than the Packers. I was just so, and I knew, like, the Chicago feeling about the team for all those years. Like, their Super Bowl run. And like then when they lost to the Packers, all that stuff. It was really interesting as a fan 
of the Packers to also like be totally up on a different team. It makes it way more fun. Like, and also it makes it you know it's like when uh, I've, like got really into football like five or six years ago. I finally understood why when people go to the game in person that they you know like have the like have a little radio so they can listen yeah. to the local sports announcers because it's way more fun because they get into it and they have loyalties and they're willing to shout and scream when there's a touchdown. <laughs> yeah, no, it's great. And then the internet now too. When I went to Lambo last year. I hadn't been for a couple of years, and it's just like that. everyone has their phone out at the game. It's like integrated into it. It's very bizarre. Um, so I appreciate you taking a couple minutes to, to chat with us, uh, yeah, yeah. or I guess with me, but it'll be in the context of a podcast that's with us. But um, super appreciate you taking a couple minutes out of your time because it sounds of like of what you guys are probably in the middle of cracking and or shooting the, the second season of The Leftovers, right? Yeah, we're right in the middle of writing the leftover season two and production hasn't started yet um shooting is not not going to start for another month or so as we get ahead on the scripts so you know what is it what is it like to come into a show into the second season because i was reading up on some of your history and you you wrote for an fx show called the bridge which i think was set at the the border between us and mexico right yeah and el paso and juarez um, so you did that for two seasons. It was it was canceled, and then you kind of quickly transitioned over to the leftovers. But you're coming in sort of after you know a show has sort of kind of established itself and a tone. So like, what what is it like to come in in between seasons? Well, it's in between the bridge and the leftovers. I also wrote for Twenty Four, Live Another Day, the reboot of Twenty Four, mm-hmm. and that I think was like my only other experience had been the bridge, which was starting from scratch, and so like the world was being built and the characters were first being conceived of. And then to go to 24 was funny because like that show is so cooked. Like the characters are exactly who they are and they have histories and not just that, but the way the story gets told in 24 is it's, it's done. It's made like it's real time, but then Jack Bauer needs, you know, impossible situations and like, miraculous ways out like there are all there's, these there's kind of a formula for 24 yeah. and not to, not to you know that sounds more uh no but you're right you know like that's not that doesn't denigrate it and right and i think it's a idiosyncratic formula like the reason that show worked is that they made their own tropes and then they stick to their own tropes they they they, they do variations on the tropes so anyway that is just to say that i had a little bit of experience going into a room where there was no negotiate like you can't go to the 24 room and be like hey like what if we don't do a real time (laughs) (laughs) you know like that's way to get yourself kicked out of the first uh uh writing meeting that you're at and but so the leftovers though is a different kind of show and they have they established a number of um i don't know they they established a number of ideas about what that show is and how those stories are told but They are loose ideas, and I think thematic ideas, but also just Damon being the way that he is, I I think that he's totally allergic to, um, like, routine, like, to getting stuck in patterns. And so one trope of The Leftovers, which I'm sure will always be be, be a part of the show, is that it's going to be surprising. It's going to be formally surprising, and it's gonna, it's going to set you up and then do something different. It's gonna mess with your expectations. I think in a, in a complicated, fun way, 
that lost it all the time too. I mean, that was just going to say that was part of the fun of watching each new season of Lost, uh, especially uh, like third season on was. So what's the trick this season? You know, what's what sort of you know gimmick you know isn't in the right word, but it's essentially like what's the the narrative framing device that's going to change our expectations? Because it seemed like they went into each season, and obviously Damon being a part of that was we want to recontextualize how we tell stories so that the storytelling stays fresh. And it seems like you know maybe not uh, as radical in in the leftovers, but certainly it seems like that idea is still alive. Yeah, and they only have ten episodes so far too. So I think the sky's the limit as to how much more of that is going to happen. And I think a lot more of that is going to happen. Um, yeah, and when that stuff, when that's at its best, the idea of recontextualizing to keep things fresh, I think that makes space for the characters to still feel alive. You know, I think that it's not arbitrary. It's not just like, hey, what fucked up thing are we going to do now because it's crazy? because surprise is fun and gratifying. I think that there's, a, there's something bigger at play there creatively when it's working right, which is that you have to do that in order to kind of, I don't know, like zap, zap the whole show and make the characters new again too and their struggles new again as well. And I think I lost, that was a huge challenge. It was, it was a, like, that was a particular challenge on Lost because they were on the island. And... Not they, you know, they weren't just on the island, but they, they kind of, they were stuck, you know, like there, there was no, there was nowhere else to go mm-hmm. for the characters. There are distinct places on the island, but you know, and then and then Lost found ways to send them other places or to see stories in other places. But like, I think if I say the show's set on an island, like the first thing you think is like, oh my god, how am I going to make? <laughs> If I'm going to do this for seven seasons, how do I find seven seasons worth of stories on an island? It seems impossible uh, from the start. And then you can, I think you can start to see like all, all of the details of the geography of the island or islands, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) And then like the flashback mechanism, we're all working to get around that. So were you you someone, uh, you know, like ourselves on on Rewatch in that you were watching Lost as it went along? Was that something that you were a fan as the show was on? Kind of halfway. I I listened to the first couple podcasts you did. So, and you guys were you were in high school, right? And you were and you were watching as you went. I was, in, co- I was in college. I, I got in. See, I was a sophomore in college, so like I caught up on the first season and then was able to be there for like the, you know when they opened the hatch at the beginning of the second season. I think Max was in a, a similar situation. So I um I am a little bit older, but I kind of resisted. I didn't really resist. I just didn't know what the hell. Like, I I was not watching a think at that time, but I was also sort of like, people were like, "Have you seen this show Lost?" And I was like, "No, I haven't seen this show Lost. I, that <laughs> does not interest me at all." And then again, like my my agent, my literary agent is like, "Are you watching Lost?" I'm like, <laughs> I'm, no, I'm doing I'm doing other things. I'm not. I don't know what that show is. It's on ABC. It doesn't. It does not. So. And then my my buddy, my writer friend in Chicago, um, was just obsessed and always talking to me about it. And then he was just actively like pitching me to watch it. And finally, after um, three seasons had already aired, I went away to this uh, writer's residency called the VCCA in Virginia, the Virginia Center for Creative Arts. I was super preoccupied with 
I had written a book of short stories and had put all this pressure on myself to write a novel, and that was the the next thing that I was supposed to do in the in the track of being a novelist. And I it was I had tried two or three times. I think I had written a whole novel, and then at the very end, before my agent was going to send it out, I was like, it's just not good enough. I don't. Something is wrong with it. Don't send it out. And so I was super frustrated by a lot of things that that are kind of like the difference between a short story and a novel. And now, in hindsight, like plot, managing a plot that big, like landing that big of a plane as opposed to a short story was really, really hard for me. And I was just learning. I was learning how to do it by trying and failing. So I was super frustrated. I went away to this place, the VCCA, and I told my friend Scott, I was like, Fine, I will watch your show. <laughs> I've, hit, I've hit a creative roadblock. Fine, I've, now, now I'm just going to just do this lost thing. But I was also like, those places are weird because you leave um, my, I guess she was my girlfriend at the time, my wife now. You leave like your whole situation. You end up on like a campus, like living a very monk-like like existence in, in a room by yourself all day writing and you don't know any of the people and you eat your meals. But... Um, I had, I was like, I'm going to have all sorts of time and I'm going to be like zapped from writing. I'm not going to want to just sit and read for hours. So I'm like, I'm going to get lost. So I downloaded five of them. And this was, I didn't have very, this is an era where internet wasn't, wasn't awesome. It took, and I downloaded, <laughs> I got HD. Um, and they just mm-hmm. took like longer than the episode itself to download each one of them. And so I was like, I got five, I'll take them. And I watched those five in the first two nights I was at the VCCA and I was like, this is fucking amazing. This is completely amazing. This show is incredible. And so I went, I had to go to the nearby college, Sweetbriar College and use their, uh, like their T T2 or whatever, use their like hardcore internet connection. And I downloaded like 30. (laughs) So for the next um, month I watched three a night and I watched I think I, I think I watched 60 episodes or something I got all the way up to my very favorite moment of Lost of all time which is the the season finale of season three yeah and that was the last one I saw right before I left so like one weird side effect of binging Lost in that context was like it totally was permeating my dreams and my imagination and in fact the book that I wrote while I was there, which was my first novel. And it's called The Cradle, and it has nothing to do with anything like Lost on the surface. It's about a guy who, lose, like, his, he's a young guy whose wife is about to have a baby, and there's a family heirloom from, from her family that was lost a long time, well, fuck. Thing. <laughs> a long time ago, and she wants him to go find it before she has the baby. It's like a little quest in the Midwest, and he's... Um, it's a mystery and he's driving around to all these places and like the story is getting a little bit bigger as he unpacks like what this family heirloom means. So it's like, it's realism. It's, it's Midwest family drama. It's very far away from what lost is. But, um, I had that idea of like, I just want to write a really simple quest guy looking for something. I love that kind of story. I had that in my like back pocket when I was driving to Virginia, but I didn't know what the heirloom was going to be. And that I don't know what episode it is that John Locke makes a 
cradle for Claire. Right. But I was like, ah, that's good. I'm going to make it a cradle. And so, and the book is called The Cradle. <laughs> you know, like no one who, no one who read that book has any idea that John Locke's cradle, <laughs> that I made that a cradle. That's great. <laughs> So, like, there are specific things like that. There's other stuff throughout that book, which, if you were to read it, you'd be like, that is a total lost moment. Like, there's, the, like, the book is set in the, in 1997, I think, and there's this character who has, like, a totally jacked up computer setup, like, way, way better than it should have been for 1997, and he has basically Skype, but it's, like, DIY Skype. Mm-hmm. I, I just imagine if someone in 97 could do that, but it was janky and, like, patched together by themselves. And he's up in this, like, tower in this uh, old Victorian house. And it's totally from the moment when Charlie is trying to talk to uh, Desmond's wife. Oh, right, in the, in the underwater, yeah. Yeah, you know, like, and they have, like, glitchy Skype, Skype video conferencing going on. Completely happens, <laughs> because, like, the night before I had watched that, and it was just feeding into it. So I have very, very fond feelings for, like for the ways in which Lost kind of participated in that, in that time when I wrote my first book. So that's interesting that then you would go on to, you know, start writing for The Leftovers as you start sort of like breaking through season two, because often, as I, as I watched The Leftovers and, you know, reading interviews that, that Damon had done, uh, it seemed like The Leftovers very much structurally is an anti-Lost in, in a lot of ways, and which is a show that is going to introduce a lot of mysteries. There are questions that are raised, but it's a show that, Whereas Lost promised, or at least tried to answer the questions it raised, The Leftovers seems less interested in answering those questions and more just living in the kind of weird purgatory that those questions raise, whether it's the, uh, you know, the, the rapture occurs or a rapture-like occurrence, because it's you know, it doesn't seem like the show is connecting itself to any sort of specific religion. But all this sort of like weird stuff that's happening in the show, it just seems like the show is not super interested in, in answering those as opposed to Lost, which is a show that was like, hey, we're going to let you know kind of what's going on. I know. It's interesting. Yes, I think that's totally true. And I'm, I'm sure that we will never know what happened um, in, in the first moments of episode one of The Leftovers. We will never know why that happened. And, and I think that Damon's been clear about that and the show sort of doesn't pretend like it's going to tell you that but i'm interested do you think you say like lost promised answers the leftovers does not promise answers do you think that that's like the the like the conversation around the shows that was that was making that promise or do you think baked into the storytelling itself lost was promising answers because those guys would do like podcasts and they'd be like we are going to answer this right like they said it yeah, yeah, I think it was a combination of that. If you were a super fan, you were listening to the podcast, you were reading the interviews, you were seeing the Comic-Con panel. But then I think once Lost realized that it was one of the first shows to do this, if not the first show, where it was embedding connections and hints and meta-storytelling in like, you know, when I would finish watching an episode and then the first thing I do is go to the Something Awful or whatever other forum I was reading and look at the screen caps and they'd be like, oh, they're hiding these hints of like connections between characters and storytelling that's happening there. And, and the way they wove this mythology, uh, and I think this is even separate from what they were promising explicitly in podcasts and interviews, was like saying like everything is connected and if you keep watching this, it's all going to make some sort of sense. You know, whether I, I felt like they were explicitly going to answer the whispers and like every single like down the line, which is uh, how some people felt. I, I never felt that way and I never wanted all that stuff because often 
the answers were less interesting than the question or the mystery itself. You know, I mean that or the goes, new turn. Yeah, yeah or, you know that goes back to hold J.J. Abrams, you know, sort of metaphor for you know Lost and a lot of the stuff of his work, uh, being that the mystery, you know, the mystery box like that he has on his desk where he's never going to open it because what's in, what's inside it is way less in- interesting than thinking about what's inside it. And I think Lost really struggled with, with you know, that specific idea of like once you read introduce this stuff some people are going to get attached to that and want to know why it is it is that way and i'm curious to see how that plays out with the leftovers because you're you're right that what is said in an interview is different than what is embedded into the storytelling um and i have trouble separating that because i'm such a voracious fan of all of this stuff that i'm you know reading all that at once so i look at leftovers and go well i'm okay with the fact that they're not going to answer these things but i've also know that because i've read that they're not right. going to answer these things. So I wouldn't also blame someone for looking at the show and going, well, I can't wait to find out what's happening with this Rapture thing. Um, but I don't know. I, I think that's an interesting question for for writers you know, like yourself to wrestle with. Yeah, and I think people... Like, the good thing about when The Leftovers is happening and that it's on cable instead of ABC, and I think I think the people will bail up front you know, for the leftovers when it's clear that they're, it's, the show's not going to give them those things. And I think Lost was just this monster that was just, like, growing and, and like, this, this, the white-hot center of the culture for, for a period. And so people were coming to it, you know. The people, weren't, people weren't leaving it. Um, and I think that brought a certain kind of expectation for answers as well. I, I don't know. I'm, in, I'm just sort of interested, like, if you stripped all of it away, the mm-hmm. internet, the moment, and, like, just had the two shows side by side, they're different. And, like you say, one's promising answers and one isn't. But they're kind of similar. No, I think I think they're they're really similar, and I think it's tough to. And it's been interesting that it's an idea that we've explored during the podcast is asking folks that have watched for the first time, like, how do you feel about it? Because I cannot separate my individual experience with Lost, which was listening to the podcast, reading the interviews, like reading the forum threads, and I feel like ultimately that stuff, while I enjoyed it, probably ruined parts of the show for me because. You can overanalyze things, and I think by by overanalyzing, and it was something the show played along with, and it played into that overanalyzing. But I also think that ended up being a weakness of the show because then when it came time to deliver answers or things like that, that it's like, well, you know, it's been built up in a way that can anything really live up to like yeah. w- what it's built? And th- is yeah. that the show's fault? Is that the storytelling's fault? Is that the fans' fault? Like it's it's actually probably all of it, you know. It's, and it's the reason Lost was such a complicated beast was because it was really doing a lot of that for the first time, you know. I mean, yeah. you know, you see uh, shows like Flash Forward and like all of the Lost like shows that came right after it completely flopped and and weren't able to capture people. And so I think as much as you know, fans get uh, up in arms about how Lost chose to answer those things. The reason it captured them in the first place because it was doing something that very, very few other shows have did before or since. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree, and I also think like the, the I, a lot of the other shows trying to use those mechanisms, um, but them failing, I think is just a testament to how good a writer Damon is, and just sort of how how smart he is about that stuff. Like he does not. He, he doesn't deploy those things whimsically. I think he deploys them ar- like architecturally. You know, like I think he sees the kind of like the narrative underpinning of why he's doing that, not just 
I'm going to do that because it's fun. Like one thing I know, like one tenet of his that he's repeated many times is that he's fine with nonlinear storytelling. He's fine with, with taking the audience to a place um, that's different than the central narrative and even them, as you know, not knowing when they are, that's fine too. Mm-hmm. But he does think like, and, and I think this is generally true, but he follows through. There's, you cannot have you, a flashback. You cannot break the narrative line unless the experience is revelatory instead of just um, ex- expository. Hmm. You know, like, so it's not enough to be like, hey, here's this black box of time where something happened and the show never showed it to you, but it was implied. Now let's go back and fill that in and do the scene. Like, it's never okay to do that for him unless you you fill in the scene. And then also there's a completely surprising and unexpected element to that. You know, like something you could not have predicted would be there to, that changes the way that you per- perceive the the main narrative thread. And, and I think that, like, that is the problem with using too many of those tricks about deviating from, from linear storytelling is that um, people do it and there's no point to having done it. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> you, they, a scene, like a, a scene basically gives you what you already knew or what you assumed, mm-hmm. a basic version of what you assumed. It, one of the things that it makes me curious about is that, you know, oftentimes uh, shows that have sort of a sprawling mythology or at least some myth- mythological component to them that isn't, you know, just like sort of a, a plot thread for a character drama. They'll often be like show Bibles that are sort of like explain much more than the show explicitly is telling you itself. Like, do you guys, and, and I guess what, what that plays into the more direct question is like, do you guys have a better sense of like, you know, the sort of questions the show isn't interested in answering. Do you kind of know what some of those are in a way or do the writers keep themselves kind of in that same black box as the viewers and just, we're not interested in figuring out the mechanisms driving driving this. Um, we're just going to kind of... I think sometimes yes and sometimes no. And then sometimes accidentally, if that makes sense, and then sometimes on purpose. So, like, there are, there are mysteries in all the shows that I've worked for. Mm-hmm. There are mysteries that we all knew the answers to and were writing around. You know, like, basically, like, you have to, when you're in that situation, when you know things that the audience doesn't know and you don't want the audience to know yet, you have to write around all of this stuff and, like, you have to manage all these problems. Like, but if this character would know this about this, then why would he say this right now? Like, you're always, like, dancing around how to deal with, with those problems. So that's, like, and that's the downside of knowing already. It can kind of, like tap the create it sucked the creative energy out of the conversation because you're trying to deal with with all these little problems that that come up like who knows what when and how is, is this real right and that takes some of the fun out of it it's sort of like it's more work because of that but you also have a, a line that uh, you have a like a a waypoint that you're heading for you know you know where you're going you know what you're doing and, and that can be very calming when you're trying to deal with a lot of content and then on the other hand when you don't know, like when, when a huge shocking turn happens in a show that was not, um, formal, was not conceived until that very moment, it's super exciting. It's like, holy fuck, that opens up everything that is, and, and we didn't see that coming. And, but 
number one, you can't count on those moments ever happening, like having this great breakthrough that is the perfect twist. And so when it doesn't come, it's, it's very frustrating. But then number two, this is another writer, writer room word. You have to retcon. Oh yeah. You know, you know, you know, yeah, the retroactive continuity. So like, you're like, okay, we're doing this. We're going to, this huge twist is happening right here, but now we have to go backwards and like, think through all that shit that already happened and they'll be like, does that make sense? Does that make sense? No, <laughs> no, but we can fix that by making this character mention this here. You know, like you can kind of massage the already produced timelines in order to make the new thing make sense. I mean, and that was always so interesting about Lost. And I think something people unfairly held against it was that every show, every story is retconning all the time because the, the idea that an idea for especially for a television show that's going to go on for multiple seasons and have actors come in and out, the idea that it's a fully formed idea from A to Z, like just never happens. You know, it was interesting to to watch Lost get sort of crucified for that. Whereas you had Vince Gilligan on on uh, Breaking Bad saying that they were constantly just pinning themselves against a wall because creatively they found it exciting to not have any idea how they were going to get out of that hole for the next season. Um, and it's interesting to see how that that kind of works itself out. Yeah, so Lost was was getting um, like attacked for not knowing what the white smoke was, uh, or for the people being like they have no idea where they're going. And I was I was like, that, of course they don't. That's, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's the point. That's why this that's why the show is so exciting. But also, I think as a watcher of TV, I'm I'm totally fine with um. I don't know. There's an illusion there. That it's like they don't know where they're going, but if they can make it, if they can make it coherent anyways, that's great. That's a great accomplishment. Whereas I feel like there is a, there's a category of viewer, like that the 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 show is somehow ruined because it was an illusion of coherence all along. You know, like that that just simply by knowing that the island didn't really exist and this wasn't a documentary of people <laughs> running around makes people uncomfortable it sort of exposes the fundamental illusion of all storytelling and and i think i think lost was unfairly dinged for being meta enough to kind of have its its storytelling badges on display all the time i think that may i think it makes people uncomfortable when they have are forced to realize that they're watching a show <laughs> if that makes any sense no it's not, no it, abs- it absolutely it absolutely makes sense um do you so i'm a video game critic and reporter in, in, in my day job. And one of the things that I find is that when I, having done that, when I play games, sometimes it kind of ruins it for me, like the experience of playing them, because I'm constantly thinking and playing these games as yeah. a critic, as opposed to just enjoying them in the way that I fell in love with the hobby in the first place. Do you find as a writer, and now that you've worked on a couple television shows, that you start getting into that mindset a little bit when you watch stuff, where you start breaking down how they got there, what they screwed up, how you would have done it differently? A li- I- it, it hasn't ruined anything. I think it, I don't know why exactly. I think it may be because I was already a novelist and then this feels like a second thing and it's mm-hmm. sort of not, it's not ruining my experience of being a TV watcher. But when stuff goes bad on a show, I, I think I'm more sensitive to like the particulars of, of why it, it went bad. Whereas like in the past I would be like, um, Hey, that was not a good episode anymore. And now I'm like, 
I know why that didn't work. <laughs> it's like not fair to do a drug episode. Right. It's not fair to make your character take a hallucinogen. Or like, I know what went bad. That actor gave a terrible performance in that crucial scene. And they were obviously cutting around him. And to get out of, out of the, uh, the shoot. And so it hurt the, the episode as a whole. Like I know, I guess I know the production side of it is what I know more too. Like sometimes things were good in the script and it, it didn't work in execution. And then you have to, you have to get around that somehow. Uh, I guess the, the last thing that I'd, uh, I'd ask you about is like, how did, how did you actually end up scoring this gig? Like how do you, how do you go from uh, learning about there's maybe an open position on the leftovers to becoming a writer on the show? Like what, what, what exactly is that process a little bit? Well, it was the, the first leap that was the, the, the really, really difficult one, which was sitting in Chicago, not being a TV writer, and then getting onto the bridge. And but all that happened was that I liked TV, and I wanted to be a part of TV somehow, but I didn't really know how to, but I, I just wrote a pilot. I wrote a, a drama, a 60-minute drama, and I knew one guy who was sort of involved um, in, in, in Hollywood and TV and movies. And he was able just to give it to someone at WME, a big agency, and then I got an agent. And then before I knew it, they put me up for the bridge, and the bridge hired me. So I would say, like, I was lucky in that I knew that one guy. Mm-hmm. And you need, you, you pretty much, you need help. You need a little bit of help. But I also, like... The main thing is you just have to you have to produce things. You have to write something that can be your calling card when nobody has any idea who you are. And so in between the the bridge and the leftovers, like was that just a like your agent finds something and then says like, "Hey, is this a show you're interested in?" Yeah, like all sorts of stuff happens. I had when I first got that agent, um, th- which was almost almost three years ago, it had just been announced that that Damon was going to make Parada's novel into a show for HBO. And I had read about that and been like, oh, man, like that, that is the pinnacle of what I would want to do if I was involved in TV. And I wrote to the agent, I was like, is there any way, you know, like, is this a possibility? And no one ever wrote back to me. <laughs> I forgot about this entirely, but I had to search... Um, I was searching for Tom Parada's email in my Gmail and I went all and it took me all the way back to this email I'd written out. I was like, holy fuck. I was trying to get onto the leftovers before I even got to Los Angeles and now the bridge was canceled. It just sort of like completely worked out. So um Anyway, what happens, yeah, is like some agents like go to meet at HBO and HBO is like, Hey, we want some new writers for this show and this show. And then the agents are like, we have this person. They pit, you know, like they throw like 30 names out to HBO and they're like, all right, well, maybe we'll meet him, send a sample. And I think for the leftovers, really what worked, what, what worked in my favor is I wrote a book of short stories, short stories that are sci-fi, like speculative, speculative sci-fi or just speculative fiction, say. And um, there is one, there are two in there that, my TV agents had, and they're like, let's send these because they're, they seem to be in, in Damon's wheelhouse instead of a script. And he read them and loved them. And he was, and like, there was some, I don't know, they fit the show. And he, then I met with him. We had this 
epic lunch conversation. Um, and then they hired me. So like there are a bunch of steps, but it was, it's weird that, that basically ended up on the show for a sci-fi story I wrote six or seven years ago <laughs> in Chicago with no plans. I was like, this is so weird. I'm not even going to be able to get it published anywhere. You know, like it was one of those stories. It was one of those things where you're like, this is completely for fun. I'm doing this for fun. Right. And that ended up being the way I got hired onto a show in my future. It's, it's a good reminder that like the best, it's always good to follow through on creative whim that doesn't seem like it's going to lead anywhere. Cause that often ends up being the best stuff that you do. Cool, man. Well, I'd super appreciate you taking the time to, to chat with me and, and to do this little thing for our goofy little podcast. I'm, I really enjoyed the first season. I'm psyched to see what happens in the second season, largely because it, it's all new stuff as opposed to being adaptations or interpretations of the book. So um, yeah, I'm super... New. It's really new. You should watch. I, I, will, I will be watching, and hopefully <laughs> everyone else who's listening to this podcast is going to watch too. But um, thanks so much for your time, and uh, good luck with you know breaking the rest of the story. You bet. Thanks a lot, man. All right, man. Take care. Bye. Uh, thank you so much to Patrick Somerville for joining us on Rewatch Podcast. That was a uh, quite a treat to get to talk to him. Thank you, Patrick. And also, good name. And I'll just keep running that joke into the ground. <clears throat> Let us now discuss this very good episode of Lost. Dun, dun, dun. It is a really good episode of Lost. It was very good. When it, when it uh, sort of like Outlaws, mm-hmm. when uh, Katie and I uh, sat down to watch it, as soon as it started, it was like, oh, this episode's really good, too. Yeah. Which is like, I, I think we I think had assumed too much or that the malaise of leading up to... Because season one ends on just like a rocket ship. Yep. Like, w- there's a moment, even now where I'm really enjoying these episodes, but there's just a moment where it just, mm-hmm. just takes off. Um, and I guess I maybe had just wrongly assumed or lumped together. Maybe because you watch so many episodes, you lump it all together and... Uh, Whatever the case may be, which is also, God damn it. God, ah, oh, delete this podcast. It's okay, it's okay Patrick. All the, best, all the best cowboys have daddy issues. Oh, delete this podcast. Oh. All right. In um, translation, what I think you were trying to say was. God damn it. <laughs> delete it. Apple's too. Stop it. Take us down. What I'm trying to say is I thought th- I thought this would be uh, sort of a, a meh episode, but uh, it was actually uh, a really strong one. And it. It reminded me just how much I love Jin and Sun as characters and how much I like watching them play off each other. And we talked about this a little bit when we watched the sort of Jin and Sun origin story. But it is remains remarkable that the show leans so heavily into them speaking Korean the entire time. Because when you start to kind of do the math on how much of this episode is subtitled and is part of like a major network program, it's kind of amazing. And... uh it's just a re- like it's uh this is spoiling a little bit of the trivia but it's it is the only Jin centric although Sun is in it it is essentially a Jin origin story to give us a backdrop for really his actions on the island and why he became the guy like this is again another quality sort of you kind of thing Jin is a dick husband turns out he's a sweetheart but he was corrupted yeah he I, I feel. They, I mean, the the gin trick. We've talked about this in the uh, in the previous. Uh, what was the the first Jin and Sun episode? I can't remember. What is it called? Yeah, I can't remember. I don't know. Anyway, where they they meet each other and they're deciding to get married. Yeah. And well, you see a lot of these other side of these events from Sun's point of view. Sure. Yes. Um, you see uh, Jin come home with the bloody knuckles, and it's a lot more ominous and upsetting. You see him. Um, 
bring her the dog and you don't know the whole story of the dog. It's just seen as a gift. <clears throat> exactly. Um, so it's kind of cool what a that it fills in the gaps. But boy, the Lost, uh, I love this trick where someone's um, a real uh, dick and then you see their backstory and you see where they're coming from and uh, you grow to like them and understand them um, uh, a lot more and they're kind of, you see them as misunderstood and, and you can sympathize with them. And uh, boy, Lost does a good job with, with Jin. I mean, yep. Probably maybe the best example of that. Of, he's, he's, of a guy who's just literally and figuratively very misunderstood. And he's, he's, he's definitely up there in terms of like my like absolute favorite sort of secondary characters. Like, yeah. you know, Jin like kind of weaves in and out and sometimes plays an important role, but by and large uh, plays sort of a supporting role uh, in the show. And they just really establish him as like so complex immediately and like they they do so much character building in this episode alone that builds on what came before but you know everything from the reason he won't say anything to son is because he doesn't want uh to sully his uh son's uh, view of her father like that's uh, maybe misguided but a very noble uh, thing to do mm-hmm. uh the way that you know he goes and you know s- sees his father and then is like d- deeply ashamed of everything he's done like just everything about it like these little moments all add up to create just an incredibly complex character that you you know especially the communication stuff is amazing too because you you, you learn so much about him because he can actually speak mm-hmm. in the flashbacks mm-hmm. and then we go to the on island stuff and he can't, he can't say anything. And but, it's compounded by the fact that he's barely talking to his wife. And, and just a reminder of how amazing, how good that storytelling is and how amazing it is that it was on network television at the time that it was. Yep. Because uh, you, know you know that when they, when they did these episodes where they had subtitles for Jid and Son, like the network executives were losing their minds. And one of my favorite show notes that they ever sent back to, uh, uh, to the producers was they were like, this is the best episode of television I've ever read. Yeah, <laughs> which is like, but it was also a compliment. Like I remember they, like yeah. the, the interviews they've done about that sh- that episode, like a specific that they just decided to go for it, yeah, to trust themselves and to trust the audience. And you know, it could have been something that if it backfired, then they wouldn't be able to pull that trick a second time. But yeah. it worked, and the audience loved it and was engaged. And I think it's a testament to not only the writing but like the the actors for for selling it. Like because yeah. I think what off I think what often happens, and I see this. I see this happen myself when I watch uh, foreign films that have subtitles. Like I often feel like I lose a lot of the nuance in what's being portrayed because I don't speak the native language. I don't pick up on the the cultural nuances in their face and their expressions. And I think what's unique about what's happening here with Lost and with those two characters is that they're acting to an American. You know what I mean? Like they're acting more with like Western sensibilities. So I feel like I'm picking up more on what they're reading in their face and in their body. Like, I don't know if that's a cultural thing. I don't know if that's because they're positioning that to a Western audience. Like, I don't know what it is, but I find, and maybe it's because I'm hearing them kind of in English in the on island stuff with sun, but I seem to pick up on it more in a way than I see myself doing. So when I, when I watch like typically foreign language stuff, well, it's a, it's a definitely a story that's very aware of the translation issues. And, you know, we've seen in previous um, episodes of Lost, like the Saeed flashback where, they do that really cool trick where it, it switches to them speaking English. And yes. you, don't, you don't even yep. notice it. Um, they don't ever do that again, I don't think, or, nor do they. I don't know. I, I, I can't. I, my knowledge of the, of the next season, you know, the rest of Lost is not as deep. I don't think they do it again in season one, uh, although there is another Saeed flashback episode, so we'll have to pay attention and see if they do, do that Do you think they partially trick. don't do it? 
maybe this is getting a dice territory, mm-hmm. but that uh, with Jin and Son, there's no sort of cultural hangups. Like they're, they're just Korean, but like with uh, like Saeed and like Middle East and Iraq, they thought that like the yeah. audience would have a weird reaction yeah, yeah. if they were well, constantly hearing someone talking. You, you're asking the audience to, and it's at, it's at the you know at the height of a lot of yeah. Stuff well, this going is on. year. This is 2005, I believe. Right. So you're it's, middle you know, of the Iraq War. Yeah, you're asking the audience already to take a big leap to sympathize with Saeed as he's an Iraqi torturer as right. the Iraq War is happening. So that's definitely a factor. But also, you know, I think it was point as it was it was. Pointed out in, in something we, we read about Lost, like that trick of just switching to English, it it wouldn't work with the Jin and Son story because so much of their story in this for, in the first season has to do with Son was planning to leave and she yeah. secretly learned English. And how do you convey? How do you have? I mean, imagine writing this episode where Jin and Son are speaking English in some scenes because it just would be incredibly confusing rem- when the big reveal happens. Yeah, it's not even that it'd be confusing as much as it would just diminish the emotional impact, like the the thud, yeah. the mic drop when she decides to reveal that she has spoke, uh, she has learned English uh, and that she can defend her husband to all these English-speaking people. Like, it re- it's it's in- incredibly powerful, and you're right, that it wouldn't have been powerful at all, uh, or at least it would have been diminished if... We've been used to them speaking English to each other in a variety of other scenarios. And yeah, that moment, that moment's so, not only is that moment great when she decides to finally speak up, but it's the awkward way everyone walks away after yeah. that. Like there's a couple of scenes where just like eyes kind of hit the ground and everyone just kind of shuffles off. Like oh, we got to leave these two to it. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's, let's do a quick uh, plot recap. Sure. So, the episode starts. Uh, what do you want to do? Let's do the off island stuff first. Okay, so, yeah. in, I think that's the easier one. So, in the off island stuff, it mostly follows a Jin's side of of this. Like uh, you said, an origin story for Jin mostly follows his side of the story from Korea. Last time we more saw things from Sun's point of view. We see that um, Jin uh, goes to ask uh, Sun's father for uh, uh, his approval on marrying uh, Sun. He's clearly kind of ashamed of, or or well, he's not proud of his background. He's from a fishing village. I I'm not sure. I'm not sure if he's not proud of it as much as he in in the world he's trying to get into that right. he would be looked down upon to have come from a fishing village and be proud of that. So yeah. I think he I think he has a, a split on that in which he clearly deeply loves his father and has a sense of history, but also feels like there are certain reality like this like this episode essentially like establishes uh, yeah. Jin as a pragmatist and 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 so he agrees to work well, for. He's a, he's a man. He's. Trapped by circumstances. Yeah. Um, and he, want, he wants to get married to son. To get married to son, he has to work for her father. In yeah. order to work for her father, he increasingly has to engage in some more salacious right. activities. And it's an interest. So it's all set up right in that. In that, that his whole dilemma, Jin's whole dilemma, is set up right in that opening scene where he goes to son's father, Mister Pike, and says, "You know, I, I, uh, I want to marry son." And he, Mister Pike, asks him some questions, and he, he says, "His father's dead." What else? And then he says uh, his dream is to open uh, a restaurant and someday mm-hmm. own a hotel. And Mr. Pike says, would you come and work for me? And Jin says, yes, if I can marry, if that would help me marry son. And Mr. Pike says, well, what am I supposed to think of a man who would give up his dreams to marry my daughter? And Jin says, my dream is to marry your daughter. And that's the whole, I think that's such a sympathetic uh, dilemma for him to be in because, I mean, every choice he makes in his whole life, all these meaningful choices he makes in his life, from the last episode, you know, where he's a server at the party to to now where he's becoming, you know, a, uh, I don't know, a hitman or whatever for um, 
for son's father. It's all motivated by ha- being able to have this relationship with son and the compromises he has to make to have that relationship destroy the relationship. And, and it's also established – it's like such a split in personality, which on, 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 on island he is so aggressive. Uh, he's getting in fights. Um, not only with uh, his wife, but with the other people. Like he's just—he's an aggressive, mean dude that it's hard to uh, sympathize with. And then the off-island stuff basically establishes him as like incredibly romantic and a well, sweetheart, like a person who picks flowers. Well, the uh, thing I—the thing I, I take away from—I mean, the thing that I am always left with a sense of is, as much as we don't understand Jin on the island. Um, but but we understand his motivations and and literally understand them because he's subtitled in his flashbacks. Uh, the people on the island do not understand Jin themselves. So like to them and and uh, sorry and he doesn't understand them. Like they just have this whole this episode is all about people not being able to meet in the middle. So you know as much as like we look at Jin and we're like you know, without the subtitles and without knowing more of his history, we're like, man, that guy's an asshole. Like he's looking at everyone on the Island, you know, and he doesn't understand what the hell they're doing. Yep. Uh, but you know, there's still all of these, this crazy mysterious stuff and there's the infighting and the politics and he's very much on the outside of it. Well, you see this, you know, very specifically in, uh, sort of the climax before son reveals that, uh, she is, uh, she can speak English yeah. in which, Jin is just increasingly yelling at Michael. And I, what I love about it is they drop the subtitles. Like, this is like the way they play with language and mm-hmm. what they do and translate and don't translate leads to like incredibly powerful moments where they drop the subtitles. Where these just, I would love to know, we should find out what he's actually saying. Mm. I'm sure it's been translated somewhere. Like, someone's yeah. actually picked up on what the Korean is. Yeah. Because uh, I'm sure he's insulting him. Or maybe he's just saying, like, I'm going to take your dog for a walk. I don't know. Like, yeah. maybe something, saying something pedantic. But when they drop the subtitles and. All you're left with is his aggression and his rage. I, it just I, underscores all that to just such an impressive degree. I got the feeling he was basically saying, I didn't burn your raft. But, Maybe, but, but I don't know. Don't, that's the thing. Is right, but that's, that's what, yeah. like, like, Michael takes it as it's e- either he's saying that or just an insult or something, and it just keeps escalating and escalating and escalating. All right, well, let's do the, the on-island story because we're, we're, we're starting to hit that. So basically it opens up with uh, Sun wants to go swimming, and she's wearing, like, a bikini and then Jin kind of runs in and covers her up with like a like a blanket or whatever. Um, in some ways, is uh, I, you know obviously it's not a surprise that Jin reacts that way. But like the well, we'll get to we'll get it to it later. But there's a specific way that they they shoot her later when after they have their fight. That if you contrast that to the way uh, the last time we've had a shot like that, which was Kate when she was out in the water just like in like a bikini, like they're shot in totally different ways. That like one is like kind of creepy and weird and like for the men in the audience, whereas the one where they shoot with her is like like this very empowering scene for her. But anyway, we could we'll, we'll yeah, get to that a little bit later. Super super interesting. Um, so it it sort of ends with him like almost like dragging her away through the sand, and uh, you kind of get to hear the commentary of the other uh, survivors on the beach going like, "Man, this again! Like they're at it again! Like they're fighting!" So you get the sense that that things are not going well. Uh, and then Michael has a confrontation. Uh, with uh, Jin, and they start fighting, and then Sun slaps Michael uh, right in the face, uh, sort of to preempt the fight and and, end things. Um, And that just sort of further increases Jin's concerns uh, that that there's something going on between Sun and Michael, which there kind of is, although it never... 
I mean, I hope it's not a spoiler to say that never really goes anywhere, but it, it sort of is this weird subtext throughout the whole season of what's going on with mm-hmm. uh, Son of Michael. Um, so then uh, the next big event is uh, 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 Michael's building this raft. Michael and Walter building this raft, and the raft uh, burns down one night, and then uh, uh, they all assume that it's a gin because he just had the fight with Michael. And then Sun sees Jin, and he's, like, washing his hands, and his hands are all burned, and that uh, makes him look very suspicious. And he, does, and, he, and he doesn't even tell his wife, like, I didn't burn the raft. Yeah, what's up with that? Um, I think they just immediately got into a fight, and then he okay. just he, – he, he's distrustful of – he's starting to now suspect there's something actually going on between Michael and mm. Sun, or at least he's aggravated by their relationship. Um, and so I think he doesn't tell her, not because – He's trying to be intentionally deceitful, but just he gets he's wrapped up in how she just keeps bringing up Michael, 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 and so yeah, he just yeah, never yeah. quite gets around to saying that he didn't do it. That's right. Um, yeah. So uh, and then uh, let's see, it, it, they do a pretty good job establishing um, early on uh, as Michael's working on the raft, like how much uh, begging, borrowing, and stealing he has to do just to get the the parts, the rope, and the yep. wiring, and just how much of this thing is cobbled together with their last resources. You, I mean, you really get a sense of it. And he's even sold Sawyer a position on the raft, which can only hold four people, just to get the last, you know, little pieces of, like, wire to tie <laughs> it's everything great. It's great how he shows up in there. Like, Jack's like, who... How did you fill that one spot? Yeah. And then he just he just always shows up. What's he say? He's right like, on he's time. Like, I'm a saver, not a spender. Exactly. So he's got some great line. Like, anyway, uh, so it it really does feel terrible when that raft burns. Like, I, it makes me upset every time I see this episode because you you really get the feeling that this was their last stuff. Like, the supplies are dwindling. They, you know, they this is not going to be an easy thing to just put it back together. Uh, so Michael kind of loses his mind, and he hits the raft. He hits the burned remains of the raft with a stick, and uh, then he has this nice, um, very touching conversation with Walt, where he's like, uh, "Well, you know, sometimes in life you have setbacks, and we're going to rebuild it." And they start working on it again. It's a, it's a great little moment. It's like yeah. probably it's like one of the like first like really genuine interactions with them. That like well, it's what's important about it is that Michael's about to get angry. Yeah, chooses to. Calm himself. He's about to get and then angry. have a moment. He's, he's losing his shit in front of his kid, and, and like, it, you know what? And like, rightfully so. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. you know, he's, I, I there's a lot going I'm, on. As the viewer, I'm very frustrated that the raft is gone too. But it's just a great. It's one of these. We keep talking about these, but it's like the when when they do a uh, a flashback episode, you know, one or two episodes back for a character, they're really good of giving you the continuing feeling of character growth as a, as a result of that flashback and their on-island experiences in the following episodes. And this is just a great little example of, like, Michael, instead of, you know, he starts to lose his shit and he's, like, hitting the raft with a, with a big stick and yelling and he sort of collects himself because he sees Walt is watching and he sets a good example and he's like, you know, Walt, sometimes there's uh, you know, setbacks in life and we're going to rebuild this mm-hmm. thing. So um, I'm trying not to, to – well, we could just do the ending, I guess. So then in the end, uh, in the very end, you see uh, Walt and uh, Locke are playing their game of uh, backgammon, and Walt is creepily uh, rolling all sixes again. forgot about that. Yeah. We never talked about least, that. Or at least, you know, it, it, he's, he's especially lucky. Yeah. And he says he makes a great – Seems to get what he wants. He makes a great comment of like Hurley owes him like $60,000 in backgammon bets. $83,000. $83,000. Which is because uh, the next episode is going to be an Hurley episode, yeah. where we'll find out. But they they make continual allusions to something weird going on with Hurley. Uh, 
in this episode, yep. uh, on the television screen at some point, you see Harley. In Korea. In Korea on yeah. television. It's unexplained, does, but yep. it's, it's sort of a, a, a nod to what's happening in the next episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then B, you know, when you start linking together these other things, like something is up with Hurley. Yeah, it, it, it's – by this time, the show is – it. I, I kept thinking as they were doing this, um, by this point, the show is operating at such high of a of – a, a, a form like the form is so good of the show that not only are they giving you every episode has its own on island and off island like stories so you have the a and sometimes the b and the c the, the, the a and the b story and sometimes the c story but they're bringing back the characters from the previous week's flashbacks to give you that feeling of character growth mm-hmm. and they're teasing the characters from the upcoming flashbacks to set up the mystery so that it's satisfying to learn about them. Because this week you see Hurley on the TV in Korea and you're like, what the fuck is Hurley doing on that TV in Korea? And it makes you gotta know. And I would love to know, and you know, we should hopefully maybe we can, if we get an interview, we could ask something like that. Like how much of that stuff is pre-planned and how much of that is in post. They realize, okay, the next episode about Hurley, like we can just CG graft, you know, yeah. Hurley onto there, and it's like, oh, that's going to be really clever. It's not because that's how sometimes that stuff well, works well, out. Like they, you know, you you can plan for all that stuff, but as we've noticed as we've uh, watched the episodes and looked at the production notes, like sometimes the episodes shift around. Uh, yeah. Sometimes the lineup is different. Th- this one was, I mean, the line, the fact that they did that, and they had the line of of Walt was like making all these the joke about, yeah, uh, without getting too spoilery about it, but the joke where he's like, yeah, Hurley owes me, uh, you know, eighty three thousand dollars or whatever. I think that was very intentional, and I think it's, I think it's what you're seeing is they're close to the end of the season and they know who the they've basically decided what this rest of the season is so it's another example of you know in 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 future seasons the writers would go to the network and they would say we are doing too many episodes and we have no end date for the series and we need a sense of scale like we need to commit to an exact number of remaining episodes and an exact number of remaining seasons so that we can tell our story in an intentional way as we know where these characters are going yeah it's like you have to know when they're we have to plot everything out, which is what I think people wanted of the writers. And in the times like now where, you know, they know they've got, you know, whatever, six episodes left in the season to wrap things up. And they also haven't necessarily been renewed for a second. I, I, I don't well, it does, think it's it been renewed matter. at this point. Yeah, it does, it, whether it's renewed right, or but not, they, it's but, like, but, they, but like the part of that plotting is like, if the show doesn't get a second season, how can we resolve some parts of what these characters are up to? Right. You're right. Exactly. How do you hit all the characters? But it's like by the time they've got these these this last block of episodes left, like they're in a really good place to be like, here's what we're going to do with all of them. And then once that's figured out, which is like I would say about now and the like writing of the, the blocking out of the whole season, mm-hmm. they're they're really richly texturing and layering every episode with with the the whole you know world. Uh, all right. So the raft uh, burns, and then they're playing the game, and then uh, Locke says he knows that. Uh, uh, Walt uh, burned the raft, and uh, we're skipping around a little bit. But the uh, then the Jin and Son uh, sort of plot uh, uh, resolves uh, uh, before all of that when um, Sawyer uh, very creepily captures Jin in the woods and ties his hands and marches him out onto the beach. And there's a big confrontation, and uh, Michael is uh, kind of beating the shit out of him. And then uh, Son yells in English, "Stop it!" And we learn that she can speak English, and he like. His heart breaks. Yeah, you've like got you, to, you, well, you, everyone's everyone is like, "What the hell?" Just well, yeah, so, Sawyer's angry. Jack's angry. Yeah, uh, everyone's confused except, I guess, for Kate or no, uh, Kate and, does, and Michael knows. Yeah, that's as right. well. Yep. Um, so you know they feign surprise, but uh, you see this moment where the veneer with Jin uh, drops for mm-hmm. a little bit, mm-hmm. and this is just a moment in which he realizes that his wife 
has lied to him, and it, and it's weird because that's wrapped in the larger context of, well, dude, you've been lying to her for a lot longer. You may have been doing it for noble reasons, but I don't think you get to take the high road here. Even yeah. though, even though, well, even though he then continues to try and do that going forward, he seems conflicted about it, especially if they, as they have that final argument in which. She has that again, like when the way they flip between subtitles in English and Korean, like and and when she decides to confess exactly what she's feeling in English, knowing that he does not understand what she is saying, but she can finally say what she's wanted to say for years, uh, and then, you know, she at least asks, like, you know, can we start over? He says no, but then as he walks away, he has a brief moment where he stops, re- like has to compose himself, and then keeps going. Like it's that whole chain of events is just terrific. Yeah, and it, it's a it's a very it's kind of a it's a very public role reversal because everyone up until now has seen Jin in this very authoritative figure over Sonya. He's very protective of her. He's kind of, she's kind of the one thing on the island he can have some control over. Um, and that's his whole community is this like one other person he can talk with. And then all of a sudden the power dynamic is completely upended in a very public way where he gets publicly like beaten and then you find out that his wife actually has all the like cultural power on the island because she could talk to people. Mm-hmm. Tough day for uh, Jin. Um, so let's see. What else? What are we missing? I feel like we left a bunch of stuff out. So there's a uh, there's a sea story. There's a sea story where a Saeed. Oh, the Saeed uh, and, and uh, uh, what's her name? Shannon uh, romance, um, which mostly my takeaway from that was. I think Saeed, they don't have a lot of stuff for Saeed to be doing right now. Not right now. No, I think they want to, they're they're planting some small seeds and, you know, I I think that's fine. There's a pretty good moment between Shannon and and Locke in which Mm -hmm. he essentially has a similar conversation with her that he has uh, with Boone and saying like, why are, why are you guys so obsessed with each other's approval? Um, Why don't you just go and and live your own lives? Locke's meddling in that relationship is very self-serving because Locke really wants Boone's loyalty. And as long as Boone, you know, as long as, and in a way, if Shannon is more committed to Saeed, it frees up Boone to, uh, to do Locke's bit. And and it also, you know, they don't, there's no sinister music when all this is happening, but it does play into the larger sort of, uh, like, what are his motives? Like, mm-hmm. is he actually on the side of the people on this island? You know, what, what exactly is his is his end goal? He also has uh, a line that gives me chills every single time that he delivers it. Every time I've watched this episode mm-hmm. uh, is when they are having the disagreement over what's going on with the raft. Oh, that's right. And then Locke comes out of, as Locke tends to do, just out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Also, we're overlooking the part where he's just straight up opening a rat and playing with its guts, trying to take the meat out, yeah. uh, which was like kind of graphic in a, in a weird way I didn't expect. But he walks over while everyone's kind of infighting, and he has the line like, we're not, on, we're not alone on this island, and we all know it. But the way he says it, like with the power and conviction and like this a little bit of like nervousness, it's just a, it gives you chills. And it's a, it's a line that feels like a, planting a flag of like the 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 story writer saying like these like it's it's a it's a way i think to nod to why aren't we talking about the fact that we just killed ethan and there are probably other people on this island and then also sort of like a wink and a nod of like there's other shit going on here this raft mm-hmm. almost feels like misdirection yeah and, and then, and then and there's the going to be a sucker in, punch the from the other fighting, side the politics of who michael and Jin and their stupid fights that they keep having i it really puts everything in perspective and it, it really, it's a big, it's like a big public moment for Locke because he, in his previous moments where he's like in front of the group, 
you know, he's been very cool and collected and, and sort of vying for authority with Jack. Um, and he really like loses it and takes off on everyone of like, you know, get, get your priorities in order. There's, you know, there's other people that we have to worry about. And then you find out that that whole speech is kind of bullshit, not kind of, but it's complete bullshit because he knows that Walt burned down the raft. So it's like, he's getting people to rally behind what he knows to be a lie. Right. Um, so it's an inter- really interesting episode for Locke because I think you're seeing a lot of, you know, he it, he. It's interesting because in each of these cases, I think he's doing the right thing, right? Like he is giving good advice to Shannon and Boone. He is right that the group should focus on the other people on the island who have attacked them and sabotaged them at every turn, and not to fight with each other about the raft, and not to even not to obsess about the raft because it's. A, it's a pretty stupid plan to begin with. <laughs> no, no one's like, no one's quite sure where they are and yeah, where they are they going to go? A map. They, they have barely like any food and water. water. It's a terrible idea. But anyway, but but, but I think that's uh, uh, so, yes, it is. But also, it's not hard to imagine how people with no other recourse right. would get behind the one thing they could possibly do. Yeah. No. I mean, maybe they should investigate the fact that a crazy woman has a power line running into the water. That seems like something that might be worth investigating. Yeah, but but I can I can see how the the raft is is something to get fixated on. Yeah, it, I get I understand where the survivors are coming from. I think Locke is right to point out that they've got bigger problems, but you know, just like the Shannon and Boone thing, he's got ulterior motives. Um, you know, he's he's uh he's playing his own game. Um, yeah, for sure. All right. Well, I, think, I, think I had that, a couple I think that covers of, most. Of I had a couple of of uh, oh, I just had one other note which okay. I was going to say. Are you, are you watching do you watch House of Cards? Yes. Uh, so I've been watching season three of House of Cards. I've, we're only two episodes in. Okay, well, I'm not going to say anything about it. Not, not. Well, we'll talk about it once people have had a chance to see it. But uh, one thing I was thinking about on House of Cards is like that's a show that Netflix explicitly wants you to binge watch, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's their marketing for it. It's like, ooh, binge watch, watch the whole thing at once. And uh, they kind of created even the phrase like binge watch to like as like marketing for House of Cards. And it's specifically designed for Netflix. Like they don't, even though House of Cards like desperately needs a previously on House of Cards, because like the whole there's this whole plot in House of Cards where like Doug Stamper and the, this woman, and I can't, I for the life of me, I can't tell you why that woman's important. There I, is a pre, there there is a previously on for season three, but it doesn't get enough into that. Yeah, it's like, do you remember it. that? I, know, I vaguely, vaguely. It's like I know. It's, I don't know. I know it's she relates some, to some like evil shit that Kevin Spacey some, did. Some other thing that needs to be covered up. Yeah, but uh, it's, like, it's weird because I think so. House of Cards feels like a show if you watched it week to week in the way that most shows are consumed, mm-hmm. that you would you would realize the flaws in the storytelling oh, a yeah. lot more because you'd be stewing over them. Mm-hmm. Whereas in binge watching, you can overlook a lot of that stuff and just indulge in the way Kevin Spacey chews scenery. And that's what I – House of Cards season one I thought had potential to be a really interesting show. And then it, it became something much cheesier, which is fine. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's just a guilty pleasure. Mm-hmm. But whereas I, – I know it's weird. Like if you're right that like it feels like House of Cards is a show that was is built for binge watching and uses binge watching as a way to cover its weaknesses. Mm-hmm. Lost is a show that benefits from binge watching but – I enjoyed the feeling of waiting a week as well. Oh, this, but then the story is so 
tight. And the story of Lost is so small in some ways. I don't think the fact that it's that it's enjoyable or sometimes heightened by binge watching is a weakness of the show in the way that it is for House of Cards. No, I think not. it's just a byproduct of the way that they do really aggressive, fast storytelling that's building a world that you're interested in. And yeah. I think that's fine. I, I we should have the more of this conversation of Lost as compared to House of Cards uh, later because I think there's some really I, I think there's some really interesting comparisons to be made there. But the thing I was going to say is uh, House of Cards is a show that is specifically tailor made to be seen, to be streamed, and watched all at once. And it's the longest, most boring title sequence of any TV show I've ever seen. It's really long. And you see, if you watch two or three episodes, which you always do when you sit down and watch House of Cards, it's like you see that thing over and over. You think, and it's like it's. It's Netflix. They know that they're developing this thing for the internet. You'd think they'd just skip right over that. I wonder if that's, if that's a contractual thing in which people have to be credited up front in a title sequence. I, I mean, like a union thing? It could be. I, you know, that's an intro. I haven't even thought of that. It could be. It could also be that there's some old school TV guys well, it's working a, it's on Fincher. House of Cards. Yeah, right, Fincher. I mean, and you want, and some TV production guys, and they're like, you know, we want this to feel real. We don't want it to be like an internet, like a YouTube show. We want it to be like a real TV show. So and that's fine. Put it in, but like, like, also, could you pop up a button that says, like, would you like to skip this title sequence? And I can hit, I can hit A on my Xbox yep. controller and it goes away. Yeah, whereas, whereas Lost, which is like the most serialized like networky has all the conceits of like you know it it uh it builds up to tension right before a commercial break and it does all the network stuff has the greatest title sequence of all time it's like it's iconic it sets the mystery it it it's like um drops the mic after a great um cold open every episode uh and it takes two seconds it's a great title sequence yep. like one of the best ever on tv i think and, and they they bookend it too Mm-hmm. You know, basically, and and they use it uh, in different perfunctory moments. Like they use it to open the episode to sort of get an opening sort of stinger, uh, or to kind of set you up. And then at the end, when you get the like lost, like that's like it's the final kick in the nuts. Like, oh, episode's over. Yeah, see you guys. And speaking of that. Uh, one of my all-time favorite ways oh, for an episode to end is the yeah. way that this episode ends. Oh, we got to talk about this. And as as the conclusion was starting, I, I looked to Katie and I was like, is this it? I can't remember. Maybe it's season two. Like, I don't remember how early they do this, but they have this conceit where there's music playing and they've they've woven in that Hurley... I'm not sure they if they, is there always a shot of Hurley listening to music when there's music they have playing established the it before okay and and it often the other nice little sound effect thing they do is it, the music will start as you see Hurley like put his headphones on and that cues the sort of like end of episode montage yeah it, but it'll start in like a tinny sort of a sound where it's like oh I get it he's it's headphone music and then, and then, then it like, sort of yeah. fades into the just non diegetic music yeah yeah and they yeah and so you know before we get to the the funny bit at the end. You know, as I mentioned before, how they specifically set up this shot where uh, uh, Sun uh, goes out uh, and like drops her towel, and they do have a shot which they they shoot her from top to bottom. So like, you, she she's a nice looking woman, but it, it's it doesn't feel like it's shot sexy. It feels like it's shot to reinforce that she is owning her own body and like who she is and her as a person. And it's just, it's so different than this like lingering creeper shot that they have for Kate uh, much earlier in the season. Um, that I just thought it was like a really interesting 
contrast. Like it's it's an it's a spot where using a shot like that, in which like an attractive woman is shown from top to bottom, can be used as a tor- storytelling device. And then there's a complete opposite way that the show can use it, which is like a like boring titillation uh, sort of pandering uh, way to show like an attractive woman. And I thought that was just sort of an interesting comparison in which they do basically the, the same shot for, for two different characters in, in different ways. But uh, then they get to the end there with, with Hurley sitting with his disc man and you get this like cute little shot of Charlie and Claire, you know, my girl Emily. Uh, and uh, ooh, then his disc man stops. And, and things, <laughs> what is, I forget what, the, what, does, what does he say. Son of a bitch. Yeah. <laughs> and then it doesn't just end on like a laugh of like Hurley saying that. He like saw, like it, it sinks in like hit those batteries are dead. Like yeah, that sucks. And you just hear the sound of the waves and you see the people on the beach for like 30 seconds, which is a long shot of nothing on network TV. I mean, it's like bracing. It's really like. You it's know, weird. Like it, it, the, it's an awkward pregnant, uh, pregnant pause that you event, you keep waiting for them to like. Okay, like when are we cutting? Like, is something gonna happen? Like, it's it's just long enough that when you look back on it, you're like, that was pretty cool. Yeah. But in the moment, you're like, this is this is weird. You, will you get that? So from I like, read is another as, piece of plane gonna fall out of the sky in the background? I, I read that as you know, this was an episode that was very much about the romantic relationships on the island. It was about people's. It was a very personal episode about people reinventing their lives and freedom and not being free and and all the societal pressures out in the real world that make us live a certain way that what does it mean to not have those on the island and you have this whole the whole thing of Walt feeling like the island is his home which is why he burns the raft mm-hmm. it's a very personal episode for all these characters and in the end you know you have this montage of everyone's romance and you see uh Charlie is being nice to Claire and um Saeed is making out with Shannon and um um you're the sad you know uh, sauna's all alone like you have all these great relationship moments and then the music dies and it's just these characters sitting on this beach and the sound of the waves in the island and you're like you know what Th- this is all well and good that these guys are having their personal character growth on the island but it feels like it's setting up for like the hammer's gonna drop well and you can't help but think about that what Locke said because yeah. there is an ominous quality to the island like as the sun is setting where you're like you know, shit, these people are still stuck on this island. It's been a month or two with no, you know, no one's been by to rescue them. There's other people on this island. They've been murdered. Yeah, they've been murdered. Like, there's crazy shit going on. There's the monster a man in the with, jungle. A man with super strength appeared to come off the, he has a boat <laughs> yeah. or he swam because he's Superman. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, it sets up a sort of an ominous, like it's, 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 it's use, it's what the show does really well is like it contrasts the beauty of Hawaii where it's shot and this island that it's set with just, within the beauty is a lot of darkness and, yeah. and it seems like you know this is where we begin to take that turn uh to to learn a little bit more uh, about that just one i mean man one of my favorite episode i like Great said, episode. one of my favorite episode endings of all time yep. that the bit with hurley's thing dying and you're like it's just, just like it's it's a meta it's like this weird meta joke too like because the show's done this a couple of times now where it's like the you know, the equivalent of red shirts where yeah. the guy that dies at Ethan's hand, they make a crack because the writers kept confusing their names. Uh, and then this is sort of like a meta commentary on like, oh, well, of course, like another show would have never had the batteries run out or. But it's, a, it's a meta commentary that's not just goofy and self-aware. It's like it is it's telling so much story. Yeah, and it's like, it, it's yeah. like it's like shit. These people have more to worry about than themselves and their own problems. Right. It's like, cause the, the cutting out of the montage, the montage music is specifically the 
oh, we're all have relationships and we're all this community of people music where you see everyone interacting with each other with no dialogue. Like that's, that's what that music cues you to think about. And when that music dies, it's just like such a clear signal of like, you know, shit. Yep. (laughs) We got a, we got problems. All right. I don't think we have any spoiler chat this week. Uh, We don't, but we have a little bit of trivia. Oh, uh, right. Trivia. So, uh, when reading along with the series title, the titles, the episode's title is Lost, dot, 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 in translation, which is kind of cute. Uh, do, 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 During the, oh, oh, we already talked about that, where Hurley is uh, off screen. Uh, bah, bah, bah. This is the only Jin centric episode. We talked about that. It kind of plucks in the whole show. In, in the season. Show. Really? Mm hmm. Okay. All other centric episodes are multi centric, either with Sun or a larger group. Uh, when Michael sees Jin kneeling on the beach and runs toward him, accusing of burning his raft, and many other characters come out yelling, we hear English from Jin's point of view, and it sounds very foreign. It is, in fact, the same, same exact dialogue as it was already heard. It just played backwards. I forgot about that moment where yeah, it was weird. Ac- it Well, but it's difficult for them to convey, like, what does it sound like for right. Jin? And right. I thought it they does, did a, it does, a pretty it okay does job give you, It does it, it is sort of, it's a case, that may be a case of where I felt like a Loss was being a little ham-fisted about that, that thing I was talking about earlier of like, you know, as, as weird and, mis- and, and, and we, you know, almost like threatening as Jin is because to us, because we don't understand him or his motivations on the island, everyone else is weird and threatening to Jin, and which is why, of course, why he's acting weird and threatening, yeah. because he's... I, I thought it was an interesting approach, but that stuff's hard to convey, and I don't think it was necessarily uh, it was, was necessary. But I thought it was interesting that it's just the the, mm-hmm. the, the words spoken backwards. Jin gives son the puppy he got from Byung Han, uh, but the next day when he arrives home after delivering the message, uh, the dog is already fully grown. <laughs> uh, and that's it. That's trivia. Thanks to Lostpedia. I had uh, I had a great one from something awful. So this is uh, periodically we'll go through. Um, you know, when I was watching Lost, everyone was talking about it on the something awful a TV board called the TVIV, and all that stuff is archived. Um, so I'll periodically go through the old uh, TVIV uh, Lost archives just to see what were people posting about as these episodes were airing. And at this point, um, so the the uh, flashback characters had already been announced for the remaining episodes in the season so we knew there was uh, another Saeed flashback and I think we knew there was another Locke flashback and like a Jack flashback and the last one was it just said unannounced or un, un it was like a surprise like they weren't announcing who the flashback was uh, and there was a rampant speculation everyone was obsessed with who is the flashback character going to be in the final episode mm. and someone and this is a theory that I remember hearing and being like I, I was so fucking excited for this but i because i really thought this was the case uh and it may still be we were not going to say if you're listening for the first time but uh the theory someone posts on uh, something awful uh the undisclosed character backstory in the finale is going to be ethan rom i heard that we find out what his deal is in the finale ethan rom yeah that's his name did they say that it was wrong yeah. oh okay i yeah, thought maybe it's like in the when hurley's going through the manifest mm. They say his name is Ethan. Oh, okay. Um, anyway, yeah, I mean that's a that's a totally uh, legitimate. Like, can you imagine watching this for the first time and and realizing you're you're dying to know about Ethan? Yeah, and he's dead, and you're like, how are we going to get this information? And you're like, oh shit, they haven't announced the last episode. It's going to be Ethan, right? But it's also that's where you know Lost is unique in that regard, in which they can kill characters off and they're not truly gone. Yeah, um, and they can they can still address what's going on with them so. unless they get a, a DUI in Hawaii. <laughs> okay, uh, next week we are watching Numbers, which is our first Hurley episode. Uh, one of my f- 
favorite episodes of the entire run of Lost. It's an iconic episode. Uh, I think it has some of my favorite music, too. It's the when Hurley's running. Oh, no, that's in the finale, dude. The airport? Well, it's later. I think we're introduced to that music in this episode. We may be introduced to that music. Do I kind of jump? No, no, that's later. Later. Mm. Later. Um, Well, let's uh, call up our good friend Chris Tilton and ask him, but I think it's later. You might be right. Uh, Okay, so anyway, next week, numbers. Important mythology episode. Fantastic episode. Mythology. Yeah, fantastic episode. Uh, The show notes for this episode, including the picture of Patrick and Katie at the shrimp truck. Mm -hmm. Beautiful picture where Patrick has very big hair. They're available on our website at rewatchpodcast.com. Also, all the other show notes are there for the other episodes. You can email us your questions or comments at rewatchpodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at rewatchpodcast. Please, please tell us your feelings on the shrimp versus prawn issue. I so am very confused by it. Uh, Steve, <laughs> thank you to Steve Fabwash Kim for our artwork. Thanks to Dose One for our theme music. You can check out his work, including his ringtone of the month at dose1.bandcamp.com. Uh, he just put on a new album. It is very good. And we'll see everyone next week as we watch a great episode of Lost Numbers. Bye. I'm so sorry. Okay. Put it in at the end, please. Okay. That actually would be pretty funny. Pretty funny after the uh, ending music. Okay.